If you brought your Bible, you can swing to 1 Kings in chapter 19 this evening. Over the course of the summer, we have been going through the book of 1 Peter, and I've entitled that, uh, that entire series from really one, probably the most important phrase in the whole book, which is the idea of refined by fire, that our faith is being refined by fire. And I chose this evening to actually finish out that series in 1 Peter by going back to the Old Testament, because I believe there's a story here for us this evening that really speaks that reality of our faith being refined by and in the fire. Um, but I think it, this, this story in particular, and you'll see it in just a second, it speaks to what it's like um, when we see God do powerful things and then we have to wrestle with how do we move forward um, in the difficult circumstances that we presently find ourselves in. Um, so I want to give you uh, just a little bit of a background here. First Kings 19, let's go backwards for just a second. Let's go backwards to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18, we meet a, a prophet, the, mo- the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. His name is Elijah. And he has what is this incredible, incredible moment where he sees the power of God um, in just an amazing, amazing way. Elijah is serving in a time amongst God's people and the nation of Israel. He's serving in a time when that nation had turned their backs on God. He's serving in a time when they had turned their hearts away from God and to worshiping false idols. Um, And so in this particular situation, Elijah comes to God's people and he basically says to them, how much longer are you going to waffle between two opinions? If, we, if he were speaking in modern day times, he'd say, when are you going to get off the fence? If God is God, then serve him, he says. And if Baal, which was the false God that so many of them were worshiping, if Baal is God, then, then worship him. And this one prophet, Elijah, is the only prophet that is remaining. And so he himself is going to challenge the enemy. He's going to challenge God's people to make a decision. So Elijah basically says this, all right, it is time for a showdown. And maybe you remember this story. He says, let's take two bulls and the prophets of Baal, the 450 prophets of Baal, they can um, sacrifice this first bull and I will sacrifice a separate bull on the altar of God. And you can call upon your God and I will call upon mine. And the God who answers from heaven by fire, that God is the one true God. And so Baal's people get to go first. The 450 prophets of Baal who were under the authority of Ahab and Jezebel, the king and the queen of Israel, the scripture says that they basically screamed and yelled and eventually began to throw tantrums over the course of 8 a.m. till about noon, crying out to Baal, asking him to send fire down. But as we know from the scripture, no fire came down. Eventually, they went to cutting themselves in a tantric fashion, trying to get God or trying to get Baal to respond, and Elijah actually mocks them and says, perhaps your God is deep in thought, perhaps he is in the bathroom, perhaps he's using the restroom. But Baal never answers, because Baal is not real. Then it's Elijah's turn, and Elijah repairs the broken down, defaced altar of God. He sets up 12 new stones that represent all of Israel. And to stack the deck against himself and to make it clear that he's not cheating, he says, pour water all over this altar to God. And so three times men come and pour water all over the altar of God. And then Elijah prayed. 
You remember what happens next. Elijah prays. He says, show these people that you are real and that you are turning their hearts back to you. And we can imagine that the heavens open up and the Scripture tells us that the fire of God came down and burned up not only the sacrifice, not only the wood, not only the water, but even the 12 stones themselves were burned away. And in that moment, finally, God's people, who up to this moment had been silent, when asked by Elijah, will you follow God, their response was silence. But in this moment, having seen the fire of God come down, they fall on their knees and they fall on their faces and they worship and they say, the Lord is God. And Elijah says, take the 450 prophets of Baal, those false prophets, and put them to death. And their lives, their lies are ended. That is 1 Kings 18. That's the story before our story tonight. Because tonight we see Elijah in 1 Kings 19. And right after God saw this miracle, I'm sorry, right after Elijah saw this miracle, Elijah runs away in fear. Elijah is overwhelmed by his circumstances. Elijah gives up. Something happened that he didn't expect. I believe that God has given us his scripture, this story even tonight, to minister to his people, to call us to remember God's faithfulness when we hit moments of challenge. And we're going to see what God has to say, not only to Elijah, but what God has to say to New City as we seek to continue God's mission here on earth by his grace and by his power in what we know will be a challenging season ahead. So let me take a moment and let's pray, and I have six applications for us tonight. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is powerful. God, we pray that you would open our ears and hearts to hear and believe and to receive this evening. Lord, refresh us where we are weary. Father, give us strength and boldness where we might be living in fear. Lord, remind us of your goodness and your grace and the call that you've placed on our lives, Lord. Pull us up. Lift us up that we might stand before you this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What we're going to do now is we're going to walk through this story in 1 Kings chapter 19, our first application tonight. Number one, it'll be on the screen behind me, our God and His mission are greater than the threats. This is going to be an amen interactive sermon tonight. So our God and His mission is greater than the threats that we face. Amen? Amen. Okay. Let's look at the first two verses that tell us just this. Ahab, says verse 1, told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, the story that I just recounted, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, I'm coming for you. You will not survive the night. Elijah here is under clearly a threat of death. And he's under threat of death because he publicly declared his faith in God. The nation of Israel, as I've already said, was in outright rejection of God. Hundreds of prophets of God, men and women who spoke for God, had been murdered at the hands of Jezebel. And Elijah very much was alone and felt the weight of being alone. He felt like, I'm the only Christian. The sacred places of worship in Israel had all been 
desecrated or been unused to the point where they were in need of repair. Believer, the threat is real for us as well. Whether we're thinking globally or personally, uh, many of us have seen the stories this week that in the city of Portland, we are burning Bibles publicly in the street. Um, Many of you probably have not heard, but let me challenge you to be in prayer for a church called Reach Church. Reach Church is a PCA church. It is a sister church that is up in Bear, Delaware, that was set on fire by an arsonist just this week. This is not the only church that has been burned in the last several weeks. But I want to tell you, even with that church, their response to their buildings being burned was this. They went on the news. They publicly forgave the man who had been caught for burning their buildings. And they prayed in front of the the news cameras. They prayed that he would be forgiven and that he would come to know Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior. As Mike prayed a minute ago, we recognize, though, that any sort of suffering or persecution or struggle, threat that we may face here presently is nothing compared to what believers every day in other countries are facing even now. We need to be aware, and I will continually call us to pray for believers in other countries who are suffering. Eleven Christians in Nigeria just this week were martyred or murdered for their faith. Eleven of almost 1,200 that have been killed in that country just this year. But we understand and we're experiencing maybe more powerfully than ever before, right, that the threat of evil in our world is also manifested physically in the creation. There's a pandemic. Where did it start? It started in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17 when God cursed the ground, if you will recall. Because of man's sin, God cursed the ground, and from that moment forward, all of creation was broken, and from that came sickness and disease and pain and grief and sorrow that we face even now in so many forms. As I shared with you guys earlier this week, our international missions partner, they are currently facing a nationwide massive food shortage that is ultimately a function of the coronavirus that is a function of the physical manifestations of sin in the world. But if we go back to 1 Peter 5 that we've been in over the course of the summer, remember at the very end of 1 Peter, it tells us this, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. Brothers and sisters, understand that Satan is very much at play in the circumstances that we see in the coronavirus and everything else that takes place as a result of it. We have a threat, but God's promises are are greater. But when we see massive division in our country, when we see social upheaval, when we see marriages that are struggling or children that are being neglected or people that are living more than ever before in isolation or believers who are distracted from following Jesus, let alone just the physical suffering of people who are dealing with this disease, we understand that the enemy of God, the enemy of God's mission is above all spiritual. The enemy is sin and Satan. In Elijah's day, God's people stopped worshiping God. Elijah asked them, will you get off the fence? They were silent. (laughs) They said nothing. So when we come to the Scripture and as a church in this city, in this place, in this time, we say, as for me and my church, we will serve the Lord. 
as for me and my house, as for you and your house, we will serve the Lord, amen, regardless of the circumstances. So if we cannot worship in person, then we will worship online, but we will worship together. If we cannot disciple in city groups this year because it's such a large conglomeration of people, we will disciple in small groups of three, but we will disciple. If we cannot have the same joy and luxury and power of city kids ministry where we're discipling and sharing the gospel with our children in a classroom together, then we will do it in our homes, which is what we ought to be doing all along to begin with, but we will not stop discipling. If we cannot serve the body of Christ here at New City in the same way, if we can't gather all together to serve, then we will go home by home and phone call by phone call to serve and care for the believers. And sharing the gospel or reaching out, it does not stop. We will share the gospel. If we have to do it from six feet away, fine, but we're not going to stop telling people about the good news of Jesus. It will not stop because our God and His mission are greater than the threats. Number two, our God and His mission, you'll notice the theme, are greater than our fear and our forgetfulness. This comes out of verses three and four. Let's look at those next two verses, talking about Elijah. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Fear in our lives increases, increases as forgetfulness of God's faithfulness increases. You understand what I said there? If we are living in fear more and more and more, it is because we are forgetting more and more that God is a good God and His promises are real, that His faithfulness is true. Elijah is consumed with fear, and so he ran away. He goes basically as far south as he can go and still be in the borders of the country. He's afraid, and so he hid from the enemy. He is afraid, and so he abandoned the mission of God. He is afraid, and so he asked to die. He's afraid, and so his shame about this fact is overwhelming him. And he is afraid and clearly wrestling with depression, among other things. Why? <laughs> well, let's be fair to Elijah, right? God had not removed the enemy. Ahab and Jezebel are still in power, and they are coming after him. God's people were still in open rebellion, despite what had just happened in the previous story. And God's prophets had literally been slaughtered throughout the country by Jezebel. What about you? What about when you lose your job and you're not sure where your income is going to come from? What about when your kids are in open rebellion and you cannot seem to make them change their mind? What about when people mock your faith? What about when you feel like you're the only Christian left? As when everything feels uncertain and when truth seems to change by the day, then we go to the one unchanging truth that we have. We remember God's faithfulness. When the threats come, we remember God's faithfulness. 
What does this look like in the life of Elijah? Understand, Elijah saw crazy stuff. Elijah, in his life to this point, Elijah has seen God feed him miraculously by birds, by ravens. He has seen him be fed by a poor widow who had no food, and yet God replenished that food daily. He has been used by God to raise a poor widow's son back from the dead. Elijah saw God make it stop raining in Israel for three years and then turned it off, turned it off and on at his will. He's just seen fire from heaven come down. Elijah needs to remember God's faithfulness. So do we. Right? Because our God fed 5,000 people with a couple of bread, pieces of bread and a couple of fish. Our God took a paralyzed man and said, Stand up. And he was healed physically and spiritually made whole. Our God raised Lazarus from the dead. Our God destroyed the power of sin and death when He died on a cross willingly and then rose Himself from the dead. Remember God's faithfulness. And then Elijah throws this in here at the end. He says, I'm, I'm no better than my father's. I hate that. You fe- do you feel what he's feeling there when he says, I'm no better than my father's? He's wrestling with such colossal shame. We've got to remember that God's grace is more powerful than our shame. You know, guilt says, I did something wrong. Shame says, as a result, I am something wrong. And Satan, the accuser, will always come at us with our past sins and failures. But the gospel says you are forgiven. In fact, it says you have been so separated from your sin as east is separated from west. Remember Peter again. Peter who denied Jesus three times. But in John chapter 21, the risen Lord Jesus comes to Peter, and three times Jesus restores and forgives Peter publicly and ends with, feed my sheep, Peter. Return to the mission. Peter, be no longer driven by your shame, but be driven by my grace. Number three, our God's provision and presence is greater than our circumstances. These are the promises that as we we see them in 1 Kings, we must apply them to our lives now. Look at verses 5 through 8. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. God's provision for us is first and foremost demonstrated in His pursuit of us. God's provision is first of all in His pursuit of us. See, Elijah ran from God, but God came running after Elijah. God did not send him into the wilderness. He Himself, says the Scripture, did that. Elijah ran away from God and God's mission. In Alcoholics Anonymous, we call that moment hitting rock bottom. The Bible here calls it sitting under a broom tree. The broom tree comes up a lot. 
You know, in the book of Job, Job describes the broom tree as a place of ruin and abandonment, and certainly Job would know. The psalmist called the broom tree a place of mourning and distress. Maybe you remember from the Old Testament the story of Hagar, a mother who was driven and abandoned into the wilderness with her baby son, who she placed under a broom tree to die because she was hopeless. And Elijah asked for death under a broom tree. But God came for Elijah. Elijah ran, God pursued Elijah. God loved Elijah so much that he went and found him in his darkest place. There is no thing that you can do, no thing that you can say, no sin that you can commit that God's grace is not more powerful to find you and bring you back. There is no mistake that you can make that God's grace is not more powerful, that His Holy Spirit is not more powerful than. So if you have given up, remember God's faithfulness. Remember God's grace and His pursuit. Last week we talked about the Romans Road in Romans 5.8 that says, But God, but God demonstrates His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that He pursued us, that He reached out to us when we didn't want Him, when we were running in the other direction. And so we can stand up on the pursuit and on the provision of God. Look at the provision. God says through the angel, get up and eat. The walk of faith for us on a daily basis as we are walking through our trials, it means the very practical trust in God that He is going to provide exactly what we need when we need it. Elijah was given something to eat and drink when he needed it. You know, in, in our house, we do our devotional time with our kids every morning, and at the table, we read our Jesus Storybook Bible. And this week, we are looking at the story of how God clothes even the flowers of the field and the birds of the air and gives them exactly what they need. And the parable that is being told there reminds us that if God can do that for the flowers and the birds, how much more will He do it for us? The Scripture says here, get up and eat. We eat the food, and the food is the Word of God. The food that we need is the worship of the one true God. So are you hungry? Are you anxious? I am, often. (laughs) Are you struggling? Are you feeling alone? Get up and fill yourself with the Word, says the Scripture. Daily, passionately, pray and seek God and worship Him. Because remember, Jesus is the Word made flesh. He is the bread of life. He is the manna from heaven. He provides. He also gives us His presence. Stand up on the presence of God. The second time, God keeps coming back. He has to do it a second time, which is a theme in Elijah's life. Get up and eat, Elijah. God's love for Elijah is relentless. He says the journey is too great unless you live by the Lord's provision. And then Elijah went to experience God's presence. It says, at at the Mount of Horeb, which is the same as the Mount of Sinai, that mountain where God met with His people, met with Moses, the mountain of God, that is where God is now sending Elijah to experience His presence. Number four, our God's call to mission is more compelling than our challenges. 
Our God's call to mission is more compelling than our challenges. Look at verses 9 and 10. This story is crazy. Look at verses 9 and 10 now. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. What are you doing here? says God the Father. I called you to experience my presence on the mountain, and yet you are in a cave. Elijah is in the cave simply because he found the challenges more compelling than the call. Elijah responds. You notice this? What does Elijah respond to the Word of God with? A list of challenges a list of complaints. And it's not that they're untrue, it's that he doesn't understand which has the upper hand. He says, I did what you told me to do, God, and it didn't work. You ever been there? You ever prayed that prayer? He says, the people you gave me to shepherd have rejected you. He says, they're literally killing us out here. I feel like I'm the only one left here. But Understand what's taking place. The loving voice of God our Father brings conviction, but not condemnation. Watch the interaction here. Elijah left for the Mount of God, but he stopped. He hid in a cave. Um, I've been in a cave. I've been on a mountain. They are obviously very different experiences. When I was in the cave, all I could see was the cave, right? All I could see was what was immediately in front of me. I experienced what most people would experience in a cave, claustrophobia. I felt like the walls were closing in. The walls of my challenges, the the walls of my anxieties, the walls of my fears, the walls of my struggle, the walls of my sin, I felt like they were coming in all around me, says Elijah. But it's a different experience on the mountain, isn't it? When you're on a mountain... You get perspective. I was on a mountain in Mexico City, and I could see everything. Right? And when I got to the top of the mountain, I realized a couple things. I realized I was really, really small. You know, and the things that before, when I was on the ground, seemed so big, when I got to the top of the mountain, those things, those problems, you realize they're really small. When you get on top of a mountain, you realize that the creator of that mountain, God Almighty, is really big. You're really small. Your problems are really small. Your threats are really small. But the gracious, loving Father God is really big. So God says, get out of the cave and go back to the mountain. Our God's call to mission is more compelling. Being on the mountain is more compelling than the challenges in the cave. Number five, from verses 11 through 14, we see this, our God and His mission call us to stand on the mount of the Lord. I think this is the most important phrase in this whole passage, to stand on the mount of the Lord. Listen to verses 11 through 14. This is God speaking, and He said, 
Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went outside and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Heard that before? We've heard that before. But listen to the voice of God. God says, go out and stand on the mountain of the Lord. Come out of the cave of your doubt and your fear and your sin. Go out and stand in the presence of God on the mountaintop. While Elijah is in the cave, this is one of the most crazy stories, I think, in all of Scripture. But while Elijah is in the cave, God sends three, we'll call them natural disasters. We're from Florida, that's language we know, right? He sends the wind, the earthquake, and the fire. Um, I have seen God's power in natural disaster before. I'm sure all of us could sit around and swap some incredible stories. Um, we went and served with a team after Hurricane Katrina in 2005, a few days after the storm had blown through, and we saw God's power of natural disaster. We saw the foundations, the bare foundations where homes used to be, but only concrete slabs remained. We saw knickknacks and household items that were stuck on the top branch of 50, 60 foot tall oak trees because that marked how high the storm surge of water had come into that area. And when the water left, those items were still hanging at the top of the tree. We saw a two lane bridge that was literally twisted like a corkscrew. And we saw the shredded pavement where a barge had been lifted out of the water, dragged across this road, scarring the road, and moved a quarter of a mile inland and dumped. We saw the power of God, and yet that is nothing. Because this passage says that the wind that God sent ripped the rocks of the mountain apart. Like, that's not category five, y'all. That's like category 50. It's a whole different level. What is God doing? What God is doing in a small way, God is revealing to Elijah his power and his justice and his holiness. And Elijah is humbled. In Exodus 19, God did the same thing, and what you're going to see more and more is the stories that Moses experienced on the mountain, Elijah experiences them as well. So in Exodus 19 and throughout the Old Testament, many, many times, if you think about it, there are moments of flood, of wind, of fire, of earthquake, of the earth opening up, and in every moment it is an expression of God's judgment, of God's justice, of God's holiness, and of God's power that we ought to rightly fear. But that's not where it ends. 
Skip from Exodus 19 to Exodus 33 in the life of Moses on the same mountain. Remember, Elijah is in a cave. Listen to Exodus 33 and verse 21. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft, a cave, a protective place in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. God says, my power, my glory, my justice, my holiness will kill you unless you are protected by me. Well, who's going to do that? How is God going to do that? Go to Colossians, New Testament. Colossians chapter 3 picks up this same idea. Colossians 3, 3 and 4 says, For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Jesus is the cleft in the rock. Even as God reveals His justice, He reveals His mercy. In the Old Testament, we see God's justice for sin, but even there we see this picture of a future New Testament coming in which God provides the very mercy that is needed to protect us from the justice that we deserve. Here is Jesus being pictured for us, even in the Old Testament. And in that moment comes the whisper. In that moment, after God has shown His justice and His power, God speaks in a whisper. And when Elijah heard the voice of God, he came out. He came out of the cave. He covered his face in the same sense because he understood God's holiness and power better than ever before. Church, are we listening to God's voice? God's voice is clear. Are we listening? God's whisper continues to call Elijah to then stand on the mount of God because the mountain of God is a mountain of grace. Do you see that? a mount that saves us from a a storm of judgment. So will we listen to the whisper of God or will we go out and stand on the mountain? Clearly, clearly this moment calls for the theological depth of Frozen 2. I can hear you, but I won't. Some look for trouble while others don't. There's a thousand reasons I should go about my day and ignore your whispers, which I wish would go away. Ooh, woo. (laughs) I've had my adventure. I don't need something new. I'm afraid of what I'm risking if I follow you. You're hearing it. Into the unknown. See, now every time you watch the movie, you're going to think of your relationship with God. It's going to draw you in. So child of God, child of God, Are you going to hold on to your thousand challenges? Are you going to hold on to your thousand mistakes, your one thousand frustrations, and live in the cave of shame? Or will you stand on the mountain of God? On the mountain of God's promises. On the mountain of God's presence and power. We sang, praise the mount. I'm fixed upon it. Mount of God's unchanging love. And maybe you've never trusted God in that way. You've never trusted Him as your personal Lord and Savior. And let me just be clear that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can save you. Today is the day to say, I'm leaving fear behind. I'm leaving my sin and my mistakes behind. I'm leaving the worship of false gods behind because they've failed me. And I'm going to hold on 
to the rock that is God. Save me from the hurricane of justice that I, I know that I deserve. Forgive me. Make me new. Change my life from the inside out. Sixth and finally, very, very simply here. Number six, and this gives us our marching orders as we move forward because that's what God does for Elijah. Our God's renewed call and co-mission is discipleship. Look at verses 15 through 18. And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mehaloi, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Haziel was an enemy king, and Jehu was a godless bad king. But God used both of them to bring his justice. God used both of them in the lives of Ahab and Jezebel to end them and their entire reign of terror. But then we hear about Elijah, whose name literally means God saves. And this is the prophet who would come after the prophet, who Elijah was called to disciple and train up. This is generational impact in God's mission. And then it says God promised a remnant of 7,000 believers, true believers in Israel, that would be saved. Seven. It's the perfect number. It's the number of completion. It is a promise that as we are being used by God in His plan of commission, the great commission, that He will do what only He can do, and He will save as only He can save. But we are called into that mission with Him even as Elijah was called to disciple Elisha. The mission is discipleship. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, says Matthew 28, the great co-mission. And renewal of this mission means investing personally in discipling others, knee-to-knee, toe-to-toe, face-to-face, or screen-to-screen, whatever it takes, but we will disciple Our mission, because it's God's mission, is to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. So by God's grace, let's go do it. Let's pray together.